A husband and a wife, this is prior to their marriage, decided that the husband would make all the major decisions and the wife would make all the minor ones. Just imagine what that might be like. After 20 years, he was asked how it was all going. And he said, it's gone great. In 20 years, I've never had to make a major decision. We live today in a world that is absolutely saturated with choices and decisions that we have to make. Every way we turn, we are faced with options, choices after choices. Uh, When you travel to a particular destination, you have a choice as to which route you're going to take. Uh, When we buy our groceries, we have choices uh, as to which shop we're going to go to and then the innumerable choices as to which brand of product we're going to choose. Uh, In our place of employment, we have choices every day. Are we going to follow and obey and comply with our employer's uh, expectations of us and be rewarded accordingly? Or are we going to choose to cut corners and, well, face the consequence of that as well? Uh, Today, this morning, you had a choice as to whether or not you were going to come to church. And by the end of the service, some of you will be thinking, did I make a good choice today or not? Not only do we make choices for ourselves, uh, we love to critique the choices and the decisions that other people make as well. And uh, in particular, those who lead in the realm of politics and national leadership are particularly prone to our critique, right? Uh, From the safety of the sidelines or our armchair, we know with crystal clarity what our politicians and our national leaders should do with a range of choices. But imagine what it might be like to have the weight of responsibility for the decisions and the choices that are made. Take, for instance, the awful choice that the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was faced with uh, during World War II. The uh, British Secret Service at Bletchley Park had broken the Nazi code and informed the government, or Winston Churchill particularly, that the German Luftwaffe were about to bomb the city of Coventry, which was a city where uh, a major producer of munitions. He effectively had two alternatives. Do I evacuate the citizens of that city and save hundreds of lives, but in the cost of doing that, the Germans would know that we have actually broken their code? Or do we not evacuate the city, take the risk of losing many lives, but keep the information flowing through the decoded messaging? Churchill had an awful choice to make. I wonder what we'd do if we were faced with those two alternatives. Well, some historians, of course, dispute some of the facts around this, but effectively the choice was made to not evacuate the city and bombing raids on the 14th of November 1940 resulted in the death of more than 500 people along with the destruction of a vast proportion of the city. Well, when it comes to making choices or deciding between options, the personality and the temperament with which people are wired by God's design also comes into play. You might be quite familiar with the uh, personality assessment tool, the 
MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Temperament Indicator. And different personality types achieve closure uh, on decisions in different ways. Some people, I would be one of these, are very decisive. Uh, I am able to reach a decision relatively quickly and seldom regret it. Uh, my wife, on the other hand, is of a different personality type where she likes to keep options open rather than close on a certain decision. Now, we learned the hard way over the years that neither of us is more right than the other. We are simply wired differently, and when we learn to work and to listen to each other and process things, we come to harmony. However, the making of decisions and choices differs from person to person. Well, I say all of this because Jesus had something important to say on the subject of decisions and choices in his Sermon on the Mount. He talked about choices we each must make in terms of the values that we are going to live by and the consequences of those choices down the road. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In other words, human beings, we are not pre-programmed robots or computers that have been programmed to only behave in one particular way. When God made us, it was with that particular, we might even say peculiar, character trait called free will. We have the freedom to choose what we will do and what we will become. This free will extends even to the point where we can choose whether we will love God and obey him or we can reject him completely. When the Bible says that God created human beings with an innate need to have connection with God and to relate with him, uh, we have, uh, well, when, when God wants us to do that, he wants us to choose to do that from our own volition rather than having been pre-programmed to do it and we couldn't do anything else. And so you have throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament a number of occasions where the people of God were challenged or confronted with choices as to which they would follow. Uh, The choice to obey and receive the benefits of that or the choice to reject and the consequences that would come. Let me give you some examples. Moses, at the end of his life, Deuteronomy chapter 30, he summoned the whole family of Israel together, and he said these words, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live. You go on a generation, and Joshua did something very similar. Uh, Joshua 24, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Make a choice. 
few hundred years on, you have the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 21. This is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. And so in each of these challenges, the, 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 the choice people make would lead to a particular end or destination. Well, well, Jesus, in the verses that we're looking at today, offers another example of this. Two alternatives are set before us. And he, if you like, he draws the picture of two gates. The imperative action is that we must all go through one of these gates. You cannot stay outside. One of the gates, he said, is very big and wide, something you can pass through with ease. The other gate is narrow and not so easy to actually get through. On the other side of the gates, there are two roads. One is a very broad road, smooth and easy to travel on, but like a multi-lane freeway with no traffic. The other is a narrow road, not so easy to travel on, many obstacles and challenges on the way. Perhaps we could liken it to something like an unsealed, windy country road. In other words, at the end of these two roads is a destination. Neither road is indefinite. They both lead to a conclusion. At the end of the broad or the easy road is what Jesus calls destruction. At the end of the narrow or the difficult road is what Jesus calls life. Now, no doubt the point of Jesus' analogy is all about life values that we choose. The kind of life a person chooses to live today leads to consequences tomorrow. We might even want to call this the law of cause and effect. What I choose today impacts on my experience down the road. Or to put all of this another way, there is an approach to life in our society today, that is totally carefree, that does what it wants, when it wants, how it wants. It's a road without boundaries or restrictions. You can do basically whatever you like. It's an easy road to travel on. But the destination, Jesus said, that it leads to is destruction or ruin. The people travelling this wide and easy road are oblivious to its conclusion. They don't even know what's around the next corner. They're enjoying the trip, but they don't know or they don't seem to care where it's heading. At the conclusion of the other road, Jesus said, is what he calls life, as distinct from death and destruction. And there were two words in the original Greek language that the New Testament was recorded in that are translated as life in our English Bibles. The first is the word bios, which basically describes life in a more chronological sense. It refers to the duration of days and being alive and breathing as distinct from being motionless and dead. The other word, though, is the word zoe, which referred more to a quality of life. Life that is full and abundant and life that has purpose. Life as God has it and which God offers to us. Full, abundant and of course in a chronological sense never ends. 
Well, obviously, it is this second word, zoe, that is the term for life that Jesus is saying is the destination of the narrow road. So when Jesus drew his pictorial analogy of gates and roads, he was really setting before us the choice of two destinations. As beings created by God with a free will, we inevitably make choices as to where our life will lead. We choose the destination that we want. Is it life or is it destruction? Now, I mean, when you distill what Jesus is saying here, I guess there aren't many people uh, in the world now or throughout history who would consciously choose for themselves destruction. I'm yet to come across many, if any, people that genuinely would prefer to be unhappy and miserable. Now, we, we all want to be fulfilled. Well, the point Jesus is making, I guess, is twofold. Number one, if that is the destination that you want to arrive at, then you have to select the correct road or the route that will take you there. And then secondly, the road to get you there is not necessarily easy or popular. Remember, Jesus once described his fundamental purpose uh, in providing for us the best kind of life it's possible to experience. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life, Zoe, and have it to the full. In other words, it is God's desire, it is God's ambition for the people of planet Earth uh, to enjoy life to the absolute fullest. But he also said, if we want life, then we have to select or choose to travel the correct route that will actually take us there. All roads may well have led to Rome in the ancient world. But that's not actually the case when it comes to principles we live by that lead to the kind of life that God has for us. All religions are not the same, despite what some people like to say. So so let's look a little bit more closely at this analogy of gates and roads that Jesus drew. Because there are a number of, I think, quite significant implications that we need to take note of. And the first is that the point of entry is actually narrow. Access to the abundant life, the best fulfilling life that God wants us to enjoy, is specifically defined. He put this alongside a number of other statements that Jesus made, and he is quite clear Uh, that the only way that we experience the kind of life that God has for us is through the forging of or the formation of a relationship, a faith relationship that a person has with himself. Listen to what Jesus said when he used the analogy of a sheep pen uh, as a description of what it means to be part of God's flock. John chapter 10, verse 7. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. 
Or on another occasion, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the sense, there's no doubting or questioning Jesus' perspective that to be a recipient of eternal life requires a narrow definition. And when Jesus used the analogy of a narrow gate, he may well have had two types of gates uh, or entry points into walled city in his day in his mind. There was typically a main gate into the walled city that was wide and large and many people could walk through it side by side. In fact, you could even enter the city through the main gate on horseback. After dark, however, that wide city gate was usually closed and guarded so that the occupants of the city could be kept safe. Uh, But, of course, there were travellers that arrived after dark when the main gate was shut, so there was typically in these walled cities another entrance point, a narrow gate uh, in in the side of the wall that late-night travellers could enter through. And there are a number of features about this narrow gate that perhaps Jesus had in mind like the fact that to get into the city, a traveller had to dismount or enter on foot if they came in through the narrow gate. Maybe Jesus had in mind that a man or a woman who wants the life that God has to offer them has to hop down off their high horse before they can enter. You cannot elevate yourself and expect to enter the life that God offers. Pride, conceitedness, doesn't bode well in the city of God. We have to humble ourselves and acknowledge our need of God before we will find the gift of life that he offers. Then another thought was, in many cities, the narrow gate was one that you couldn't even walk through standing up. To get through, a person needed to sometimes bow their head or in some cases even get down on their hands and knees. Maybe this points to the need for submission on the part of the person who wants the life that God offers. We, we don't look God in the eye, equal to equal, and demand our rights. No, we come to him on our knees in submission to his lordship and his headship over us. While he offers us mercy and life as a gift, the position that we receive that gift of life from Jesus is actually on our knees. It is an unmerited gift based on his favor, not our decision or ability. And then another implication, the narrow gate meant a person could actually only pass through it one at a time. Unlike the wider main city gate where you could enter at four or five abreast, it was even possible to carry someone through into the city through the wide gate. But not the small narrow gate. That was a, an individual one at a time kind of experience. And maybe Jesus had in mind the fact that the life and the salvation that God offers the human race must be personally received one at a time. Here's a thought to take away and chew on. God has no grandchildren. Just children. And just because parents are Christians does not guarantee that our children will be also. They must choose for themselves 
to become a follower of Jesus. We must all individually and personally choose to begin our own journey on the road to life by choosing to pass through the narrow gate. No one else can make that decision for us. Each person must make that decision for him or herself. Then another implication of Jesus' analogy, he says that the road, this road to life is challenging. Now, this this certainly wasn't the only time in the teaching of Jesus where uh, he referred to uh, the fact that those who choose to follow him would find that they encounter difficulty. He was actually quite upfront about that. He, He said things like, everyone will hate you because of me. Who wants to sign up and become one of my followers now? Or, you know, I I have chosen you out of the world, that's why the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Again, anybody want to become one of my followers? Now, following Jesus is not an easy road to travel on, at least compared to the broad road that leads to destruction. When you travel on a broad road or a wide road, you don't need to be quite so particular. There's a wide margin for error. On a narrow road, though, you have to be much more alert as to where you steer. There isn't so much room to do as you please. So so Jesus' analogy of a narrow road, I think, points to the idea of life that is disciplined. Life that trains and shapes character. The the word discipline today has acquired a bit of a a negative connotation. We often think of it in our contemporary culture as something of a a punishment that's done when you've done something wrong. But that's actually not its root. Its origins, it actually refers to training and learning, preparation. A marathon runner does not wake up one morning and decide, you know what, today I'm going to go and run a marathon and then just simply turn up at the the start line. It doesn't doesn't work like that. Now, the marathon runner submits his or her body to the rigors of a disciplined training program. They watch their diet, they set strict routines that will help build strength and stamina. They go on, on training runs and set goals for themselves in terms of distance and timing and preparation. Well, well, the road to life, a la Jesus' analogy, is the road to living under God's discipline. It means that we don't simply have the right to choose what we want to do and how we want to live and what our values and morals are going to be. No, we, we actually live life taking our direction from Jesus. And we're criticised for this. Well, one of the, the, the common or the oft criticisms of, of, of religion and, and, and Christianity in our day and age amongst people who take the Bible seriously is that we, we live by this book, all these rules and regulations that pretty much inhibit liberty and freedom. And those who are on the broad road would say, well, why do, why do you want to have all these rules and regulations? Just hang loose. Go with the flow. Boundary fences supposedly stifle freedom and creativity. I, I love the story, I've told this before, of, of Tony Campolo, who told of a group of, of, of liberal educators who tried an experiment 
on, on a kindergarten playground. And, and in their worldview, they felt having boundary fences around the property of the, uh, of, of the kindergarten playground inhibited the development and the, the, the creativity of the students. We need to take away those rules and, and, and regulations. And, and, and so they, they took away all the boundary fences. This will free up the children to develop and mature. And they'll make wise decisions. An interesting thing happened. When they took away the boundary fences, all the children tended to huddle into the center of the playground. They didn't venture very far at all. I thought this was unusual, so they tried the opposite experiment. They put the fences back, and an interesting thing happened. When they put the boundary fences around the outskirts of the property, all of a sudden the children started to play all over the property, even right up to the very edge of the property, right up against the boundary fences. Living without boundaries, living without values restrictions, actually makes about as much sense as let's petition the Hamilton City Council to take down the boundary fences on the side of the Bridge Street Bridge or the Boundary Street Bridge or the Fairfield Bridge. I mean, they get in the way of the view. It's a beautiful view looking up and down the river there. And it's an insult to our intelligence. We know how to drive our cars. We don't need boundary fences, for goodness. We would be hugging the white line, right? The boundaries, the restrictions, they don't inhibit, they increase our sense of freedom. And seeking the discipline and the instruction of God is why Christians place such importance upon the teaching of the Bible. If the road to life is narrow and hard to follow, the Bible is a little bit like our road map on the narrow road. There's one more implication. And this is interesting. Only a few find it. The, the road to life that Jesus talks about is not widely regarded as the most popular route to happiness. The, the broad road, where people can live as they please and do as they want, oh, that, that's, that's much more popular. Now, Jesus said that those who aim at the destination of life actually have to be prepared to be in the minority. It implies the foregoing of safety in numbers. Those who follow the path to life sometimes have to be prepared to stand against the tide of popular opinion. It sometimes means being a little bit like a salmon where we swim against the stream. The path, the ideology that we live by will at times run counter to the broad or the easy road that leads to destruction. There are sometimes some really interesting philosophical views about the latter days before the return of Jesus where some people think that there's going to be this massive, massive revival and we need to go up to the high places and shout at the devil and it'll all bring it in. It'll start from the east and move to the west or it'll start from the west and move to the east or the north to the south. I just wish sometimes God and his prophets would actually be a little bit more consistent um, as to which way it's going to come. But you know what? According to Jesus... 
There's not going to be a massive revival before the return of Jesus. We're going to be in the minority. Always. Because most people will not find the road to life. It'll be too costly for them. First Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter made a really interesting statement, a challenge. He said, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, I don't know what your, um, your, your uh, historical journey as a Christian has been, but I, I used to struggle with that, that verse. What, what on earth does that mean? How can I be holy? As if holiness is some kind of you know, altered spiritual piety state or being extra specially godlike in one's character. Actually, that's not what it means. The, the original Greek word, the hagios, uh, fundamentally implies being separated from the rest. Maybe words like different or distinctive or set apart are more identifiable as understandings of what it means to be holy. In the same way that God is different or distinctive or set apart, we who belong to his family, we also are different or distinctive or set apart from the culture in which we live. People who are different in our world are often looked upon with suspicion and derision. And so the road to life will often be an uphill battle against popular opinion. How did Paul put it in Romans chapter 12? He basically told us to be non-conformists. He said, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The road to life is not a popular route. It's not a class one highway. However, at the end... Oh my goodness, it's worth the effort. But then nothing of value in life comes without sweat or discomfort or resistance of some sort. That's interesting. Jesus suggested that the larger portion of people in our world will not follow or find the narrow road. His statement about gates and roads here, I think, is a challenge to the theological position that many people, many Christians today, secretly believe but would never voice it or admit it, called universalism. That basically believes that in the end, a God of love, he will let anybody into heaven because he's just a good guy. He's kind and gracious and loving. How, after all, could a a God of love banish people to hell? That's untenable. That's incomprehensible with the concept of love. And yet Jesus said that the people who will find the path to eternal life will be comparatively few. The majority won't make it. Maybe even people in our families. But is it really God who chooses to condemn and consign us to judgment and destruction? Or is that not an actual fact, our personal choice, the choice that the person themselves makes as to which gate and road they're going to pass through and along? Because Jesus is pretty clear. God offers the people of our world the gift of eternal life, free. He'll give it to us. 
quality, longevity. He invites us into restored relationship or friendship with God and all the blessings that go with that and the benefits of being a son or a daughter of the Most High God. We make the fundamental choice, though, as to which gate we go through and which road we travel. Now, Jesus has set before us two alternatives, life, or destruction. On face value, most people say they want life. Well, that's fine. Jesus' point, though, is that we choose the destination we arrive at. And the gateway, the point of entry to the love and the life that God offers is narrow and humbling. And the road to achieve that is often difficult. It requires submission to God's direction. And at times, the journey will be lonely. Most people seem to opt for the easy road. Few disciplines, no boundaries. But the end destination of the narrow road is life. Which I guess raises the fundamental question that every single one of us needs to answer for ourselves upon which road or through which gate are we currently travelling? And, and my appeal to us would be, if you don't know Jesus Christ, choose today to get to know him. Start talking to him. Turn your thoughts towards heaven. Ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord, the master, the controller of your life. And maybe some things you have to give up. But oh, the joy of choosing the narrow road, difficult at times, that leads to life. And I guarantee you that you will not regret that decision. Let me finish with this. William Arthur Dunkley was an English journalist, a novelist, and a poet. He published his poetry under the name John Oxenham. And on the issue of choice, he wrote the following. To every man there openeth a way and ways and a way. Some men climb the highway and some men grope below. And in between on the misty flats the rest drift to and fro. And to every man there openeth a highway and a low, and every man decideth which way his soul will go. Let's pray together.